Well, I invite you this morning, if you would, to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. And this morning, we are going to continue with part two of a message that I have entitled, Saved for His Glory, a study uh, through Exodus 13, 17, ending in Exodus 14, 31. And we started this several weeks ago, so today, Lord willing, we will conclude this portion of Scripture. Well, certainly the Bible teaches us over and over again that our God is a God of miracles. We know from the creation of the world in Genesis 1 to the creation of a new heaven and earth in Revelation 21 that we see God doing miraculous things. We see Him doing the impossible. Think, for example, in the Old Testament where we see Aaron's rod changed into a serpent, waters turned to blood, manna sent from heaven, Water flowing from a rock, Balaam's donkey speaking, the river Jordan divided, the walls of Jericho falling down, the sun and the moon standing still, and Daniel unharmed in a lion's den. And then in the New Testament, we see the miracles of our Lord Jesus, who changed water into wine, who gave a great haul of fish, who stilled a storm, who did countless miracles of healing, who walked on water, who fed the 5,000 who cast out demons, who raised the dead and resurrected from the dead. And as John rightly said in John 21, 25, now there also are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We know as well, though, that God also works miracles through people, doesn't he? For example, Elijah caused rain to cease for three and a half years. Elisha healed Naaman from leprosy. We know that Peter healed a crippled man, that he raised Dorcas from the dead, that he miraculously escaped prison with angelic help. Paul healed many people. He laid hands on the converts of John the Baptist and caused them to speak in tongues and to prophesy. And the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul's skin brought healing to the sick and caused evil spirits to come out of them. So we see that truly our God is a God of miracles. Our God is a God of the impossible. Now I know that God still works miracles through people, beloved, because he regularly works miracles through me. Would you like to know how that happens? My wife actually pointed this out to me. I wasn't aware of it. But anyway, we were in a conversation one day about our upcoming schedules, which were very busy. And my wife was saying to me, you know, she said, I have so much on my mind. I have so much to do. She said, you know, I'm always thinking about something. She said, my mind is always active. And I proceeded to tell her, well, dear, there are times when I'm thinking of absolutely nothing. (laughs) And with a serious look on her face, she said, that's impossible. And I said, oh, no, oh, no, there are many times when I have absolutely nothing on my mind, and I'm thinking this must be a miracle, that I have the miracle of not thinking about anything. Now, in all seriousness, we know that God is a God of miracles, and we know, beloved, that the miracles of God always have a purpose. Miracles authenticated the divinely approved messengers of God, such as prophets and apostles. Miracles also testified to the reality and the truth concerning the person and work of Christ. And from our text this morning, we're going to see that God performed one of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament to show that God was indeed the Lord of all, that he was the God of Israel. And in doing so, he caused the Israelites to fear him 
and also to believe in him. And of course, the end result of everything that God does is for God to get glory for himself. So this morning, we return to what is one of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea. And in this miracle, we also see one of the greatest acts of redemption in the Old Testament. And nowhere in the Old Testament will you find a more powerful demonstration of God acting for his glory. And through the redemption of Israel, we'll see that God used it to get glory for himself. And this is important for us because it's important for us to see that regarding our redemption, we are primarily saved for the glory of God. Can we get an amen for that, right? And this, beloved, should affect the way that we live. So this morning we return to our text in Exodus 14. Again, part two of a message I've entitled, Saved for God's Glory. Now in the whole of our text, last time we met, I said we can identify three ways, three acts of God really, in saving Israel for his glory. And as we look at these things, we learn how God glorifies himself through our salvation and then how we also can bring glory to God. And in the first part of this message, we identified the first two of those three acts that God did in saving Israel for his glory. And since it's been a few weeks, I want to just quickly review these first two acts in saving Israel. And I will not read all of the text for the sake of time. And since this is a narrative, I will just review it by way of narrative and we'll look at a few verses in each one of these areas of review. The first thing we talked about last time was that God led the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness. And this was the first step in God getting glory. And we see this in Exodus 13, verses 17, through Exodus 14, verse 2. So let me explain what we see there. God had brought Israel out of Egypt. But remember, instead of taking a direct route back to Israel, God took the Israelites south into the wilderness towards the Sinai Desert. And he did this for two reasons. First of all, for the Israelites to avoid a military confrontation again with the Egyptians. And also because a direct route back to Israel would take them right through territory that was occupied by the Philistines. So he did not lead them right back to Israel, but rather south. We're told that they were led by the very presence of God in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide them. And after 430 years of slavery in Egypt, the Israelites were finally free. Now, a cursory reading of this text might lead us to believe that God's main purpose, that the main thrust of this passage is God's redemption of Israel. And yet, as great as this was, God had an even greater purpose in leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and that was to show both Egypt and Israel that I am the Lord. And we see this in four verses in Exodus 14.4, verse 17, verse 18, and also in verse 31. God repeated, he wanted them to understand that I am the Lord, obviously bringing glory to himself. And that was the way that he said he would get glory over Pharaoh. And that would also bring the Israelites back to a reverential fear of the Lord and literally a belief in the Lord. Now, to accomplish his purposes, God did something that left the Israelites dumbfounded. He had the people make a giant U-turn and head right back towards Egypt, to a place that bordered their place of enslavement, an area not far from where Pharaoh and his army were headquartered. 
So here God led them back towards Egypt and he put the Israelites in the most vulnerable place that he could find. In front of them was nothing but flat desert and behind them was nothing but the Red Sea. God explained to Moses why he did this and we see it in Exodus 14 verses 3 and 4. So let's look there. God said to Moses, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And notice this, and they did so. So here the Israelites come back to this dangerous place. No doubt they're terrified again, they're feeling hopeless. But God then went on to act again in this whole desire for himself to get glory. And it brings us to the second act of God in saving Israel for his glory. And this is that he sent Pharaoh after the Israelites. And we read about this in Exodus 14 verses 5 through 12. Let me explain it to you. Pharaoh, hearing of this turn of events, and now of course with a hardened heart, set out to pursue the Israelites, no doubt to bring them back into slavery. And with defiant disregard and disrespect of God, Pharaoh, his army, his chariots, his horsemen, his officers, they all set out in hot pursuit of the Israelites. And of course, when the Israelites saw them coming, they were paralyzed with fear. This must have been their worst nightmare. And they did what most of us always do. They blamed someone else. They blamed Moses. And they were convinced that they were doomed, that Moses had brought them to this place where they would either be slaughtered or they would be brought back into slavery. And it's amazing, isn't it, how quickly people had forgotten God. And their bitter complaining filled Moses and God with righteous indignation. And I want you to notice Moses' response down in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now I want you to remember, beloved, that these are not words of comfort here. These are words of rebuke. Moses was redirecting the people's focus back to God, and he's telling them, look, You need to be quiet and you need not to fear. You're not to fight, you're not to defend, you're not to deflect, you're not to run, and you're not to surrender. You are just to stand and wait. Be still, be quiet, because the Lord is about to fight for you. And so we see that God had his people right where he wanted them. They were caught between an invincible army and the, and the Red Sea. And there was no human way out for the Israelites. God had removed any possibility for the Israelites to think that they had any power or potential to help themselves. Their reputation, or their redemption rather, their fate was entirely in the hands of God. And that brings us to this third and final act of God in saving Israel. In part two of our message today having first brought the Israelites into the wilderness, secondly causing Pharaoh to pursue them, we lastly see now God actively, or God being active in saving the Israelites for his glory. So here we see God acting to save the Israelites for his glory. Now you remember back in verse 13, Moses had told the people not to be afraid. 
And you know, it's as if Moses is saying to the people, have you forgotten the faithfulness of God in the past? Have you forgotten that just days ago that God struck the Egyptians with 10 plagues and that God freed you from bondage? Do you still not see a pillar of cloud over you by day and a pillar of fire over you by night? Moses rebuked them for their lack of faith and and the Lord himself adds a divine rebuke to this lack of faith and we see it in verse 15. He says directly to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now this verse seems puzzling, doesn't it? Because it seems that God is giving Moses a reprimand here. In the Hebrew, the word you occurs in the singular, thereby referring to Moses. God is speaking in the singular to Moses. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And yet Moses was hardly the one that needed to be rebuked. It was the Israelites who were crying out in fear and in grumbling. They were the ones that needed to be rebuked. So how are we to understand this? We need to recognize, beloved, that as Israel's prophet, Moses represented the people before God. He was their mediator in the covenant. The rebuke that God gave Moses was therefore meant for all of Israel. And he was saying the hour of their salvation had come. This is now not the time for crying and complaining. This is the time to move on. This is the time that we need to go forward. So God is saying, get over your fear, get over your paralysis, move forward in faith. Now, if you're tracking with me, this seems to contradict what Moses had just said back in verse 13. Remember there, Moses told the Israelites to stand firm or to stand still. So how is it that God would tell the Israelites to stand still and then say, move forward? I think Arthur Pink explains this perfectly. And this is what he says. He says, go forward does not contradict, but complements the standstill. This is ever the spiritual order. We are not ready to go forward until we have first stood still and seen the salvation of the Lord. Faith must be based on the divine promise and obedience to the command must spring from the faith thus produced. Before we are ready to go forward, faith must see that which is invisible. Namely, the salvation of the Lord and this before it is actually wrought in us. So in practical terms then, we have to first, beloved, be still before the Lord in order to get the right faith perspective and then we can move forward. So we see that the Israelites were ready to see what God would do. Then by faith they would walk through the sea, we know, on dry ground. You know, as I thought about this idea of being still and moving forward, I want to suggest that you and I are not that different from the Israelites. How many of you are in situations where you have no earthly idea what God is doing? Any of you ever been in that situation? How many of you are in that situation right now? You should have heard the groans in the first service. We all get that, don't we? We're all in situations at times where we do not know what God is doing. And there are times when we feel abandoned and lost. There are times, are there not, beloved, when you and I feel so backed into a corner, there seems to be no way out. And it's at these times that we shouldn't lose sight of the Lord himself. 
Listen, there are times that we need to remember that we walk by faith, not by sight. Amen? And there are times, listen, when we first have to stand still before we go forward. And let me help you with this. What do we often do when we're in trouble or when we don't know what God's doing or when we have insecurity or when we have fear? We look to the future, amen? What's going to happen tomorrow? I wonder what this is going to be. Am I going to be able to do this? I want to suggest a different way to approach this. Instead of looking to the future and trying to guess what God may or may not do, be still and first look to the past. And remember the sure and tangible faithfulness of God in your life up to this point. You have a past in Christ, right? Look at what God has already done. How many of you are here still breathing this morning? God is good, amen? Think of the past. Think of what God has brought you through. And we don't naturally do this, do we? You know, it's interesting, isn't it? No matter how many times that God has delivered us in the past, no matter how many times we have seen God exert his power on our behalf, when a new trial comes, we easily forget God and we are often swallowed up then in our present emergency, aren't we? That's our problem. We just simply forget God. And then instead of moving forward, we get paralyzed. We don't know what to do. And we cry out to God in prayer as if, oh, it's, it's hopeless. God, I never thought I'd be here. And we get panicked and we just, we just lose perspective. I think Charles Spurgeon had some great practical insight in regard to verse 15. Listen to what he says. He says, far be it from me ever to say a word in disparagement of the holy, happy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But beloved, there are times when prayer is not enough, when prayer itself is out of season. When we have prayed over a matter to a certain degree, it then becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty is to carry our desires into action, and having asked God's guidance and having received divine power from on high, to go at once to our duty without any longer deliberation or delay. Amen. So here we see it was God's desire for the people to get moving, to get going. But humanly speaking, we understand from what we've read so far that what God was telling them to do was impossible. You see, there was no way to move forward. They were up against the sea. And yet we know that with God, all things are possible, right? How many of you have been in situations where you saw no way out, but God got you out? I bet we'd have a lot of testimonies if we run around the room and asked about that. God is the God where all things are possible. And that leads us really to the main point of this verse. What I want you to see in this is our very salvation. You see, this verse points us to the constant message of the Bible, which is that, listen, we cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. Only God can open up a way of salvation. And you know what? Today, every sinner is in the same hopeless situation that the Israelites found themselves in. There is nothing that an unregenerate sinner can do to save himself. There is a red sea of sin between them and the shores of salvation. 
And until God changes the minds and the hearts of people, until they are drawn by God's irresistible grace, listen, no one will come to Christ. So to move forward, an unbeliever must repent and he must believe. But what about believers? What do we do when we are paralyzed by fear, when we are having trouble moving forward? How do we move forward in faith when we see no way forward? I think we do what every Christian has always been called to do throughout the ages. We go forward in faith not by what you may or may not see. We go forward in faith knowing that the Lord will fight for you. We go forward in faith living in obedience to the commands of God. We go forward in our faith by worshiping the Lord God. We go forward in raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We go forward by living a life of faith and of hope and of love. We go forward in giving thanks to God in every circumstance and entrusting our care to Him. We go forward as a living sacrifice and as a trophy for Christ so that we bring God glory in and through us. That's how we go forward. Now let's get back to the Israelites for a minute. I can imagine what they were thinking. So Moses, move forward, eh? Uh, Would you like us to swim or walk on water? Because that was about the only thought that they had at the time. They did not see any other solution, and that's exactly what God wanted. But God was about to provide the solution. Look at verse 16. Lift up your staff, he says to Moses, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So here we see God asking Moses to raise his staff towards the sea. And in verse 21, we're told that the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and that he made the sea dry land. Now I find this interesting because some theologians have attempted to explain this as simply natural phenomena. But that explanation doesn't go far enough. True that the wind and the stretched out staff of Moses was definitely used to part the Red Sea. But what brought Israel through the sea on dry ground, listen, was the power of God. The whole text is full of divine activity. Bringing Israel out of Egypt was the power of God. Telling Moses to raise his staff was the power of God. Hardening the hearts of the Egyptians was the power of God. Leading and protecting the Israelites by pillars of cloud and fire, that was by the power of God. And thus it's important to see that while God often uses nature to bend to his will, this miracle is far from simply being a natural phenomena. This was a miracle of God. The greatest redemptive miracle in the Old Testament. I think there's one more controversy surrounding this event. There is certainly no lack of disagreement as to where the Israelites went through the Red Sea. The Bible calls this sea Yam Suf, which literally in Hebrew translates to the Sea of Reeds. But the problem is, you see, that reeds do not grow in deep ocean waters. They only grow in the shallow marshlands, which at the time were found in Upper Egypt. And therefore, many liberal theologians claim that the Israelites didn't really go through deep water, but rather the shallow waters of the Red Sea, which at low tide would be no more than about a foot deep. Now, I think there's a humorous side to this theory. 
There was a young girl in Sunday school class one day hearing the story of the Red Sea crossing. And the teacher said that the Israelites didn't really cross through the sea, but rather through this little body of water at low tide, which would have been no more than about six inches deep. And this little girl responded, she said, that's amazing. Praise the Lord, he drowned the whole Egyptian army in six inches of water. (laughs) Now, I'm not buying that, folks. I am not buying that. Because, you see, that does not square with Scripture. A better translation of Yam Suf is literally the sea of the end. And without getting into ten sermons on the geographical arguments for where, we know that the Israelites crossed through deep waters, which no doubt were located at the northwest area of the Red Sea. And I know that because of what we read in verses 22 and 29. Go with me to Exodus 14. Look first at verse 22. Notice it says, And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And then we go down to verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters, notice, being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Listen, that term wall in these verses refers to a huge city wall. This is referring to a very, very high wall, not just a low knee wall. These were massive walls of water. And in Psalm 78, 13, it recounts, He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters like a heap. Now, does that sound like six inches of water? In verses in 17 and 18, we see how God acted to get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. So let's look there. He said, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now, in verse 17, we're told that God would harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they would pursue the Israelites with reckless abandon. And I want to review this hardening of hearts for a moment because many people cringe at this. Even Christians cringe at this. God's hardening of the Egyptian hearts strengthened and fortified the sinful emotions and the evil intentions that they already had for Israel. They hated Israel. Remember, they wanted them killed or captured. And so God simply fortified those feelings, ensuring that they remained unrelenting in their evil desires. And thus God guaranteed that they would face the full judgment for their wickedness. This hardening was really part of God's righteous judgment for sin. And we want to remember that God's mercy never negates God's justice. And God did this to get glory for himself by showing the Egyptians that I am Lord. And they will come to confess this later on in our text. But we can't leave these verses without further saturating our minds on this idea of God getting glory. Because we hear that term all the time, don't we? We give God glory. God gets the glory. I think we hear it so often it becomes almost just Christian speak. And we really don't think about it. So what does that mean? Well, glory is a word that we use to summarize something in its entirety. For example, if if you were going to list all of the things that you loved about a certain day, you might say, what a glorious day. In the same way, we list the individual aspects of God's excellence, his majesty, his beauty, his magnificence by saying, what a glorious God. 
In fact, God is so glorious that nothing can make him greater, nothing can add or take away from what he is already, and nothing can increase his perfections. So then how does God get glory for himself? Well, God gets glory from us or for himself when his excellence is acknowledged, when it's recognized, when it's displayed, or when it's revealed. That's how God gets glory. So God will get glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians because he's going to make them realize that he is Yahweh. He is the one that's fighting for Israel. He is the one who is matchless in power. And he will reveal just judgment against the Egyptians. And likewise, God will get glory by revealing this miracle to the Israelites, by showing the way that he would fight for them, so that they would begin to fear him again and to believe in him with all their heart. You know, beloved, the fact that I am preaching about the Red Sea today, thousands of years later, proves that God is still getting glory for this. Amen? I mean, the fact that we're talking about this thousands of years later, God's still getting glory today. Because we're recounting the story. Now before God divides the waters, we're told in our narrative that he divides the people and the Egyptians into two separate camps by moving the angel of God in a pillar of cloud from going before Israel to now going behind Israel. And we see that in verses 19 and 20. Let's read. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So we see that the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling ahead of the Israelites, now went behind them, and he stood now between the camp of the Israelites and the Egyptians. We know that this pillar of cloud and fire was what we call a theophany, which is a visible appearance of the invisible God. And in scripture, this cloud is identified as the angel of God, and literally that refers to this being a messenger of God. John Owen said this about this theophany. He said, the person who went behind the Israelites to protect them was the angel of the covenant, the great angel of the presence of God, in whom was the name and nature of God. So we know that God himself was in this glorious cloud, but the cloud also was his messenger. As you recall, Moses experienced something very similar when he saw the angel of the Lord appearing to him in a burning bush. But notice there, it was the Lord himself who spoke to Moses. And we see that back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. Now the question we have to answer is, why did God move the cloud? Well, the simple answer is is that the cloud now was more than just their guide. The cloud was now their guard. The cloud moving behind Israel was to protect Israel from the Egyptian army. The Egyptians, remember, were champing at the bit to attack, but God, through this cloud, kept them at bay all night long. God literally kept them in the dark. By divine decree, the cloud that kept the Egyptians blinded to what was happening, they could not see a thing, they could not move forward, they were in the dark all night long. Conversely, we know that the Israelites were in the light. And this is a great, great metaphor, isn't it? Because 
That's just like believers and unbelievers. Listen, we're in the light. Unbelievers are in darkness. Amen? And this is what we see here. This is what distinguishes God's people from the world. We are in the light. Those outside of Christ are yet in darkness. And we're told that all night long, God was moving the Israelites through the Red Sea on dry land. They easily numbered over a million. There were 600,000 men, plus women and children, plus animals, plus possessions. And I am sure the Red Sea was parted wide enough to accommodate this massive movement of humanity. It's like going through Atlanta. How many of you have ever been through Atlanta at rush hour, right? Uh, Isn't that fun? You know, there's no time when Atlanta is not jammed, right? Like there's 12 or 15 lanes and it's like, you know, I, I picture the Red Sea being parted that far, only without the traffic jams, you know, but it must have been wide. Now, another thing is, you may wonder why God just didn't finish off the Egyptians that night. Why didn't he just kill them off? The Bible doesn't say specifically, but I'm going to give you what I think is right because it came to me through divine revelation. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I am a man of miracles, not divine revelation. Think of it this way. The fact that a cloud brings darkness to Egypt but light to Israel should have been a reminder to Pharaoh in Egypt of the ninth plague when God had Moses stretch out his hand and Egypt, we're told, was covered in pitch blackness for three days. We see that back in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. You would have thought this might alert Pharaoh to saying, hey, I've seen this before. This is not a good sign. It should have alerted Pharaoh as to what happened the last time that Egypt was swallowed up in darkness. And he should have remembered that soon after this, that God struck down all of the Egyptian firstborn. But to remember that at this point, Pharaoh had a hardened heart. And so he sat in the dark and he waited. Yet we know this same cloud that brought darkness to Egypt illuminated the night for Israel and all night long they crossed the Red Sea. But at daybreak, we know the Egyptians pursued. And Moses records this event for us in verses 21 through 29. Let's look at that. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left." 
Now, beloved, I can only imagine what this would have looked like. This would have been a great Kodak moment. Amen? And I want to try to picture this event from two perspectives. First of all, I want to picture it from the point of view of the last Israelite who would have crossed the Red Sea. And then from the first Egyptian to pursue the Israelites. Just think for a minute of the last Israelite who was walking through this wall of water, okay? He's walking along on dry ground. And he's got these massive walls of water on both sides of him. Now, I find it interesting that they walked. Does anybody else find that? I would have wanted to have my Adidas on. I would have been running. I mean, it's like, I trust you, Lord, but 100 feet high walls of water would not make me feel too safe. Maybe he saw some fish staring back at him. That would have been interesting. Maybe he dragged his fingers across the wall just to see what that would be like. But no doubt, whatever he did, he probably looked back every so often to see if the Egyptians had broken through. But all he saw was this pillar of cloud protecting him. And as he gets to the other side, dawn begins to break. Now I want you to think of the first Egyptian to pursue You've been stuck on the shores all night long in darkness. It's eerily similar to the ninth plague that you've experienced. And finally the darkness lifts and Pharaoh gives the order to charge. You drive your horse and your chariot into that wall of water. You are blinded by rage and hatred. And you do not even think about all that you have witnessed in Egypt. At full gallop you've now crossed far enough and you're close enough to the other side that you see the outline of a man who is standing on the shore. And you see that he is raising his staff and you identify him as Moses. Suddenly, water from the bottom of the wall starts to run across your path. Uh Uh-oh. You try to keep moving, but your chariot wheels are quickly engulfed in sea mud and you bog down. You look behind you and you see immediately that your whole battalion, your whole army is hopelessly stuck in mud and you are stricken with terror and panic. And your courage melts as you realize that the Lord of Israel is fighting against you. In seconds, the sea walls of water give way and it crushes the air out of your lungs. You gasp for air, but your lungs fill with water and your fate is sealed. And of course, we know that not one of Pharaoh's army survived. You know, beloved, we hear this. This is not a fairy tale. This is not an allegory. This is not a myth. This really happened. Amen? This really happened. This was divine retribution. God got glory from the Egyptians. He was going to get glory from the Israelites. The Egyptians realized that the Lord God of Israel was fighting against them. And was it not appropriate that God would have them die by drowning? Remember what Pharaoh decreed when the Israelite children were born? He wanted them drowned in the Nile, right? So God said, you want my people drowned, I'm going to drown you. God doesn't do anything by accident, amen? Listen, God is glorified when he judges people for their sins because this displays his divine attribute of justice. And here's another thing I want you to see, that God also judged Egypt's gods, and this also was for his glory. It's ironic that the 
Egyptians were defeated at daybreak. This isn't an accident. Remember that the Egyptians worshipped their sun god Ra, who was supposed to rise in the east, and their sun god Ra was supposed to have great power and be able to save them, and Ra could not save them that day. Nor could Pharaoh, who was often revered as a god. But of course, God was doing more than judging the Egyptians, beloved. He was saving the Israelites, and this too was for his glory. Look at verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see, the crossing of the Red Sea brought glory to God by convincing the Israelites to believe in God. That strengthened their faith. I think that would strengthen my faith. How about you? It deepened their trust in God. It drove them to worship God again with the right hearts. Now this narrative, exegetically, is not really hard to understand. It's very common. But I want to talk about how we apply this incredible narrative because I think we often miss the mark. How do we apply something like this today? Unfortunately, here is a common way that believers often apply this passage to their lives. They say, well, this passage applies to the various trials of life. In other words, I have trials in my life, and that's my Egypt. And those responsible for my troubles is my Pharaoh. And when I'm delivered from these trials, that's my Red Sea. For example... One's stressful job might be one's Egypt, and his boss is a real pharaoh. And we get a better job, that's his Red Sea. Now listen, beloved, I realize that we're all in situations and legitimate struggles that God cares about, okay? That's not trying to minimize that. However, we err greatly if we view the Exodus as a metaphor for trials that are common to most of us in the Christian life. And I don't say this to devalue the importance of the trials that you're going through. I say this so as not to devalue the importance of the exodus. Listen, if we're going to use the exodus as a metaphor for something, then we need to choose an event of similar magnitude. We can't compare peanuts to planets. For example, if someone was rescued from the Auschwitz concentration camp in World War II... And someone said to that person, you know, I know exactly how you felt. I used to work for a terrible company and my bad boss, that was the Auschwitz of my life. Listen, there would be no comparison. We don't devalue the work situation, but that response devalues Auschwitz, amen? Suffering at that concentration camp was so significant, it would be sacrilegious to compare a job to what people suffered in a concentration camp. So the question is, what event is equal to the Exodus? And Scripture is clear. The New Testament compares the Exodus not to the trials of life, but to the eternal salvation from sin, death, and judgment by the grace of God through faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the point. Listen, Jesus is a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, 
Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then in Acts 3.22, Peter repeats this verse in Deuteronomy, and he identifies Jesus as being that prophet. So how should we apply this passage? Listen, we entered the waters of judgment as Egyptians. Amen? But we emerged as Israelites. Hallelujah. We are crucified with Christ and we arise as sons. So slavery to sin was our Egypt. Satan was our Pharaoh. But the death and resurrection of Christ is our Red Sea passage. You see, our exodus, beloved, is not moving from a bad day to a good day. Our exodus is moving from hell to heaven, from death to life, from slavery to sin to freedom in Christ, from darkness to light, from condemnation to eternal life, from guilty to forgiving, from being a child of wrath to now being a child of God. That's our exodus. In understanding the magnitude of the exodus out of Egypt helps us put everything in proper perspective. Listen, we go through trials and sickness and conflict. We go through suffering and persecution. Those are things that are significant. But for those of us in Christ, those are really post-Exodus trials in the desert, on the way to the promised land. Those aren't really our trials. We've already gone through the Red Sea. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So view your trials not as an exodus, but in light of the exodus that's already been accomplished. So just as God acted for Moses for the benefit of the Israelites to bring him glory, so God acted for us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save his elect. What happened at the Red Sea should clarify our relationship to Christ. And you know, beloved, the Red Sea experience that really matters is that Jesus passed through the walls of death, came out victorious on the other side. So all of us who are spiritually baptized into Christ have already had our exodus experience. We had it at Calvary. We had it at the garden tomb. Jesus died. He rose again for us. And with Jesus, we are now safe on the other side. And all that remains for us to do is what the Israelites did. Fear God and trust him as we go forward. You know, the evil one will pursue us during our sojourn through this world, but he's a defeated enemy, and no one can snatch us from Jesus' hand. He will never leave us nor forsake us, and he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So if you walk away from this narrative, walk away understanding this, never forget that God is always and forever leading you, he's protecting you, and he is delivering you. And never forget that you are saved for the glory of God. As Jude said, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the freedom that we enjoy in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought us through the waters of judgment, through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for freely giving us your Son, And Lord Jesus, we thank you for freely paying our debt. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for indwelling us with the grace of salvation. Here in this world, we know in part, we know in part your perfections, we see in part your glory. 
But Lord, someday we look forward to that day when we are fully glorified and when we are in your presence forever. So as we sojourn through this world, please, Lord, use us as vessels for your glory. Keep us mindful of the freedom we have in Christ and give us a faith that shows so great a salvation has been given to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.